the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. This was the first time the British were somewhat aware of what the red lines, so to speak, of the Irish positions were. The first Irish proposals for a new relationship with Britain. Dara Gannon joins us for a Downing Street diary on the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations a century ago. Also... The monarch was always popular throughout the war and is very much seen as sort of embodiment of Britishness, a very symbolic individual and someone who's viewed in this period with a lot of awe and reverence. For king and country, Heather Jones on how the First World War changed British cultural attitudes to the monarchy. But to begin this evening, it's Halloween, so we're going to start with a very gruesome bit of business, the dark trade of grave robbing. Back in the days when willing patients were scarce and surgery was mostly guesswork, there was a great demand for bodies to practice on. Some people weren't too fussy about where the bodies came from. Body snatching was a thriving business, but the competition was fierce. The trailer there for the 1972 film Burke and Hare. It's based on the true story of two Irish criminals who made a profit by killing people and selling their bodies to medical schools in 19th century Edinburgh. Theirs is a unique case in that they actually committed murder to maintain a steady supply of corpses. But uh, during the 18th and 19th century, the practice of body snatching, the secret stealing of dead bodies from their graves, was very common indeed. At the time, Dublin was the body snatching capital of Europe, as corpses were in constant demand by anatomy and surgical schools, where they were essential for medical research and training. To talk about the macabre trade of the resurrectionist, I'm joined by historian uh, Michal Odivillin, founder of Kilmainham Tales. So what led to this explosion in grave robbing in the late 18th and early 19th uh, century, Michal? Um, explosion in population was one. Number two, increased interest and knowledge of anatomy anyway, and more and more need for trained surgeons, doctors, chemists, etc. All of these things led to it. Initially, you had obviously several, you had what, several graveyards around Dublin where the bodies were taken from. These were needed to go to anatomy schools where they would be used to train surgeons with. They could go to demonstration areas where surgeons would demonstrate for the public as much as for the surgeons themselves or the trainee surgeons, or indeed the the chemists, because they also had to learn anatomy too. So you had lots and lots of reasons why you needed bodies. The problem was you couldn't get bodies. You know, there are not too many of them around. And uh, you could only get them from criminals who were hanged. And in Dublin, that meant maybe 20, maybe 30 a year. But when you consider that some of the schools you had, like maybe 15 schools in Dublin, they had maybe 9, 10, maybe 15 pupils per school. So you're looking at a couple of hundred pupils who needed maybe up to three bodies a year per pupil. So that's a lot of bodies needed just in Dublin alone. So they had to get them somewhere. And were there gangs who were organised whose job it was or who saw it as their job to collect these bodies? <laughs> um, yes. I mean, they were, it was a very profitable business if you were in it and you were doing it well. There were, there were two types of gang. There was the amateur, which basically was the student. They would go out in gangs of you know, two, three or four of them, rob a body and bring it back. And then, they, of course, they would cut it up and have a look at it and study it. That was the amateur. But you had the professionals. They went out and they deliberately sought out bodies 
and they would sell them then to these these uh, anatomy schools. They sold them for good profit. You know, I mean, in Dublin, you would get maybe six, seven pounds for a, a body in 1800. Now, that was, you know, that was could be a month's wages for one man. And bearing in mind that they could maybe get five or six of these in a night, uh, you know, there really was good money going there. And tell us about the, the tools of the grave robbers, because they're quite interesting, not what you would expect necessarily. Yeah, they're not what you expect. The first and most important one is a sack or a tarpaulin of some sort to put on the ground. And this is so that any earth you dig out, you can place it on that. It doesn't lie around when you replace it in the grave. Uh, in order to dig out the grave, you needed a shovel, but not an ordinary one. You needed a wooden one because it wouldn't make noise. If you hit a stone or whatever, it doesn't clang off it. That's, or when you hit the coffin, indeed, it doesn't clang off it. Uh, you needed a rope, obviously, and you needed hooks. These were to get the uh, coffin open. The hooks would be placed on the rope, and when you got down to it, uh, you could stick it under the lid and just yank it up. You didn't need the whole coffin up, just the top portion of it, uh, you know, the head as far as the shoulders. And bear in mind that most of the graves they were stealing from were poor people's graves, so the coffins would be poor and poor quality. And did you always cover your tracks? <laughs> well, they tried to. Um, I mean, they would, they, they would refill the grave. But remember, there was a couple of things. They could only take the body. They couldn't take the winding sheet or the shroud or anything else that the body was in. That was stealing. Mm. Uh, the body was not considered property. It belonged to the earth and to nobody else. Uh, so you could take that. So you had to put the shroud back. That would be the normal thing to do. And then you cover the grave back in. You put the earth back on it, put the body into the sack that you had with you and took it away. If you were seen by anybody, perhaps you could take the body out of the sack drape it around your shoulders and you all staggered off like a few drunks down the road. But that, but that would mean that, that there would be families who would be going to a grave who would have no idea that the body was no longer in the grave. Yes, that's quite true. And they may not find out for years. Most likely the time they'd find out would be if they buried another person in that grave. But many of these graves were very, very shallow and there wouldn't be another body going in on top. Uh, you know, Places like Bully's Acre, for example, which was a free graveyard. You didn't have to pay to be buried there. So that got crowded and packed with the poor of Dublin were burying there. All you had to do there was go up to uh, the pub beside the graveyard, uh, buy a pint, borrow the shovel and uh, head into the graveyard. And you only dug down as far as you needed to go Mm. in there. And were there any instances, celebrated instances perhaps, Mm -hmm. where people did discover that their relatives' remains had been stolen? Well, for me, the the most interesting one was around about 1840. There was a a, a chap who, he was on his way into into Marabone Lane Distillery of all places, and he was stopped by a policeman who asked him to come down to the coroner's court to sit on a coroner's jury. He protested, but the coroner said, look, it'll only take a couple of minutes. The guy's been found drowned in the canal. There's not a mark on him, so it's just a quick look at the body, declare he's been found drowned, and that's it, and it's all over. But when he got down to the coroner's court and he saw the body, he discovered it was his father's body, which he had buried three days previously. He was horrified. He tried to convince the policeman of this. Uh, Eventually did, and that's when the whole thing was uncovered, that this was a plot with the coroner, who got paid per court he sat. And so he needed bodies to be brought in so that he could get more money. If, uh, on the other hand, the the body was damaged when it was in the canal, say it hit a barge or something, then he would need to have a doctor in to have a look at it to make sure that it wasn't murder. So the doctor got paid as well. 
And the, co- the court case, of course, went on longer and he was paid by the length of the court. So it, it was a win-win situation for him. Total no scam. What. Absolutely, total scam. Of course, somebody would also if um, take the clothes. I mean, the, the, this guy's father had been buried in his best clothes. But when he pulled out of the canal, he's in rags. So his good suit's gone somewhere mm. as well. And this was so lucrative, this trade, if you like, yes. was so lucrative that they were even exporting bodies from Dublin to Britain. Oh, Dublin was a, a big exporting centre. I mean, Britain isn't that far away, you know, journey-wise. So there were two places. Ideally, you get them over to Liverpool and get them from there quickly up to London if needed. Uh, you could get them up to Edinburgh as well, across from Belfast over to Edinburgh as well. A short run there too. And bodies were packed into various types of containers, usually some sort of barrel a barrel that, that would smell, uh, naturally smell. Mm. So perhaps one that had been used for rum or brandy or something like that. You would pack the bodies into that, maybe four, five, six, because it didn't matter if you broke them. You know, they could bend into unnatural positions and you got them in there, two or three adults maybe and a couple of children into it. The problem obviously was that there could be delays and um, they would begin to smell. But we didn't just export bodies, obviously. We exported <laughs> body snatchers as well in the, in, uh, yeah. in the case of, of Burke and Hare. And did the, did the cemeteries and the families in particular do much to prevent the graves being robbed? Yes. I mean, the first thing, obviously, was to build walls around them, Glasnevin being a typical example of that, very, very high walls around it, and watchtowers on it because they, they would have guards in them. Uh, these would come on late at night, well, you know, maybe about 8 o'clock at night or so. so sorry, Glasnevin is built when? In the 1830s? They're still yeah. doing it in still the 1830s? Still doing it in the 1830s, wow. yeah. Okay. Um, they were doing it when, when Glasnevin opened first. But they, they built these watchtowers to stop people. They, they could see them. And you'd have guards, armed guards in the watchtower, watching out to see them. And they needed to be armed because these criminals were obviously quite determined to get the bodies out. They also, of course, would put dogs, Alsatians or whatever, around, you know, release them in, into the graveyard. And funnily enough, Glasnevin actually had one funny little thing. They had a mobile watchtower that could move to the newest grave. Because remember, we see Glasnevin as a huge graveyard now, but it, it grew, it gradually mm. extended so that you could move this watchtower to where the nearest, nearest burials were. Um, and they also had cages, didn't they? They had uh, what were known as mort safes. Explain about those. Um, yeah, it, basically it's a cage, an inverted cage, which you put down over the body. There were many, many different designs of them. And it was simply went down, went down beyond the coffin and was fixed, if possible, into the grave in some way so that if you tried to dig down, you just hit this on the way. You, you could hire these and you only needed to hire it for three or four weeks until the body was of no value to the to the grave robber at all. Or he could have permanent ones, which could be fixed directly to the coffin itself, maybe bolted in through a, a piece on the bottom of the coffin or whatever. But they also had uh, some tricks, guns fixed to them, which would go off when you got down there, explosives. Uh, there's one famous case of a, a man putting in gunpowder into an explosive unit on top of his coffin, so terrifying everybody that when the, the priest was sort of throwing in the, the, the sod of earth at the end of it, he, he just threw it and jumped back in case the thing went off. <laughs> and did anyone then in the anatomy schools, for example, mm. did they ever question where all these bodies uh, were coming from? Or was it a case of don't ask, don't tell? Don't ask. Don't ask where they're coming from. The surgeons knew very well where they were coming from because they were paying these people and they were paying them well. They were paying them a stipend up front. 
They were paying them per body. They were paying them holiday pay. They would pay them if they when they were in jail. They would support their families if these people were put in jail. They were paying all along the way for this. So they knew exactly what was happening. And realistically, if this didn't happen, there were no surgeons and there were no anatomy schools and no doctors coming out of it. So it, it was unfortunately a necessary trade until it was fixed. And if you were caught, and if you were caught with a shroud, I mean, obviously, as you say, yes. stealing a body was not a felony, but stealing yeah. a shroud was yes. a felony. Uh, what would happen? Because I know in the in the in the eighteenth century, you could <laughs> be executed you for could. stealing very little. You could indeed. But who are you tried by? You're supposed to be tried by your peers, but you're not. You're tried by the free men of the city. Who were the free men of the city? The surgeons, etc. So you would get a light sentence. It could be a month or two months in jail. It could even be a year if you were, if somebody was you know, really determined to get you. But you were supported financially by the surgeon while you were in there. Uh, now, I suppose you could argue that it's a trade that hasn't ended because in, yeah. in relatively recent years, the body of the great BBC correspondent in, in America, Alistair yeah. Cook, was, was actually kidnapped. Yes. But when, as a trade, when did this morbid uh, yeah. profession end? Well, the, the, the death knell, dare I say, uh, <laughs> was in 1832 when an act was passed which said that, number one, anatomists had to be licensed. Anatomy schools could be inspected. So you need a traceability, dare one say, on the bodies you had. But it also said that not just the hanged, but those who died in workhouses were unclaimed people. And, and that gave a lot of extra bodies. So in. a legitimate supply, And basically. what you've got to remember is that, unfortunately, you know, just a couple of years after that, you had the, uh, what, 1838, you had the cholera epidemic. And then, of course, the famine mm. came right after that. So there was no shortage of bodies, unfortunately. Now, I suppose one of the more famous cases in Ireland of grave robbing was that of the, the boxer Dan Donnelly. His arm <laughs> is, is even on display yeah. in the pub. But there are two other examples yeah. that interest you particularly. Two ah, people yeah. whose bodies weren't stolen by any criminal gang, but yes. in fact were stolen by their relatives or friends. Two extremely well-known yeah. people. Who were they? Well, Robert Emmett, of course, is the, is the most famous one. He was buried in Bully's Acre, the, the home of grave robbing. But he was buried there by, by Comenum Jail because the, nobody collected his body, no family members. There was no one to do so after he'd been executed. So the jail buried him in Bully's Acre. His relatives and friends felt really this was an insult to such a patriot and he had to be moved. So sometime later, they went in, they dug him up under cover of darkness and they took him away. And there ends the story because we truly don't know where. No, he's gone. And so his epitaph cannot be written. It can, it can be written, but we don't know where mm. to put it. Mm. Um, this is the problem. And until he accidentally turns up somewhere, we've no idea where he is. And then Anne Devlin. Ah, yeah. Well, Anne is my favourite person. But um, Anne had a hard life after Robert Emmett when, when he died. She worked, worked well and she earned some money. And when her husband died in 1846, she bought a grave in Glasnevin and she buried him in that. Now, she, by the time she herself died in 1851, she was broke. And when she died, she was found dead in her room and they buried her in a pauper's coffin. And she was buried in the same grave as, as her husband. One of her great friends was, was historian R.R. Madden, and he was away at the time. And when he came back, he was told she'd been buried in a pauper's coffin. He jumped to the conclusion, pauper's coffin, pauper's, pauper's grave. grave. 
Yeah. So about six months later, the middle of 1852, himself, brother Luke Cullen, Thomas Campion, some other relatives, probably her husband's relatives, and certainly relatives of Anne's herself, her brother John would have been there, and some other friends. They arranged another funeral in Glasnevin for an Anne Devlin, purchased a grave, and went off, and on the appointed day, turned up with nothing. Went over the grave, took it up, took the body out, and went over and buried it. Nobody saw them do it, nobody saw anything wrong. So they filled in the other grave, and that was it, not bothering to look to see what was underneath Anne's coffin. And they buried her there, and there she lay, well, until today. She's still in that grave. She's one of only two people in Glasnevin who's buried in two graves. According to their records, she is in two graves. <laughs> well, my guest is Michal O'Divaline. Um I hope we haven't given our listeners too much cause for nightmares, but uh, as we have heard when it comes to horror stories, sometimes truth is much stranger and much scarier than fiction. Michal, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. After the break, I'll be joined by Dr. Dara Gannon for an update on the ongoing Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations taking place a century ago this week. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Time now for another edition of Downing Street Diaries, where Dr. Dara Gannon of University College Dublin joins us to talk about the ongoing treaty negotiations in London a century ago. Dara is also the author of a forthcoming volume from Cambridge University Press, Conflict, Diaspora and Empire, Irish Nationalism in Great Britain, 1912 to 1922. Uh, Last week, we talked about the beginning of the negotiations and discussed a little bit about the, the personalities involved. Bring us up to speed, first of all, of what was happening in the two weeks from the around about the 11th, 12th of October up to this point, around the 31st of October. So the the negotiations got off to somewhat of a slow start in the sense of the first few days beginning on the 11th of October 1921. Both sides are really feeling each other out. And Arthur Griffith essentially was trying to delay the um, discussion of serious issues such as empire, constitutional status and Ulster because they were waiting on de Valera and the Dáil cabinet to send forth the full draft proposal called Draft Treaty A from the Irish side. So there was an element in week one of delaying tactics on the part of Arthur Griffith. And this actually led to a somewhat inauspicious commentary from David Lloyd George in which he talked about the delegates being impossible people. They come to the point but rarely come to a decision. And he characterised Arthur Griffith, who he saw as the leader, uh, as someone who had no power of expression. And He said he spoke rather like a clever, incoherent Welshman. So um, there was a a little bit of stalling in in week one. Griffith was, on the other hand, very impressed by Lloyd George's personal styles, the Welsh wizard, as he was known, um, but found him very ignorant in his own terms of the understandings of Ulster. And so there was an element of of sparring in those first two weeks getting to know each other. However, things took a dramatic turn, essentially, from the 19th of October. So there were seven plenary sessions between the 11th and 24th of October in which all of the negotiating personnel were involved. But from the 19th of October... 
there were external pressures which really changed the dynamics of the negotiations. And this began when Pope Benedict XV sent a telegram to King George V welcoming the negotiations and hoping for peace. George V's reply, however, indicated that this was an internal Irish issue. Troubles in Ireland was the term that he used. And this caused Eamon de Valera all the way back in Dublin to write a rebuttal publicly on the 21st of October, disavowing this idea of an internal Irish issue, asserting that Ireland was a separate, independent nation. Interesting that you should say that Lloyd George saw Griffith as the leader of the delegation because in the hundred years or so that has passed, I think Collins, to some extent, in the minds of Irish people and Irish historians, has kind of overtaken uh, Griffith. If that did happen, did that happen during the negotiations or is that just a kind of an ex post facto gloss that we've tended to put on it because Collins is a far more charismatic figure than Arthur Griffith. That's an excellent point, Miles, because I think the the kind of cult of Collins, so to speak, has certainly overtaken the history of which we speak. There was an element even contemporaneously that the leaders saw Collins as something of an emerging political leader. While Griffith took over the um, negotiations per se, Collins drafted a a document with the support of Erskine Childers about Ireland's military defences and providing safeguards for Britain. And Churchill, of all people, called it a remarkable document uh, and spoke glowingly of Collins in that respect. So there was a sense that Collins was a developing political leader intellectually, but Griffith led the negotiations. And of course, they would become a tandem, really, in the British political mind henceforth. Now, what were then the first Irish proposals for a new relationship with Britain? So the Irish proposals arrive on the 24th of October, sent over by the Dáil Cabinet. And this was the putative draft Treaty A. And as before, the negotiations had kind of stalled over some of the details of finance, trade and security and so on. This was the first time the British were somewhat aware of what the red lines, so to speak, of the Irish positions were. And they essentially were, it was essentially a six point document. And the most important aspect of this was that the Irish Republic was not mentioned explicitly in this proposal, which was signed off by the entire cabinet in Dublin. Rather, they used the term external association. And this was an idea developed by by Eamon de Valera earlier in the summer and somewhat agreed to by hardliners like Brewer and Stack, which ostensibly would maintain Irish independence in the form of an Irish Republic, but which would voluntarily associate that Irish Republic with the British Empire. Almost like a maths equation where the Irish Republic was tangential at a certain point to the British Empire. And de Valera was, of course, a mathematician by trade. And this, in many ways, has gone down in the history books as a gross error or misjudgment or miscalculation because it failed. But in many ways, it was perhaps the only solution to those competing ideas of empire and Irish Republic, the symbology which is so uh, important and integral to the negotiations at that time. And the Irish delegation presented this on the 24th of October, and they presented it again on the 29th of October as the bottom line of the Irish negotiating position. British response to draft Treaty A, what was it? They were confused somewhat by what this meant in terms of were the Irish coming into the empire or not. And Lloyd George and Churchill tried to corner Griffith and Collins primarily on this issue of empire and loyalty to the British crown. uh, Lloyd George asked, for example, will you be uh, citizens 
or aliens within the United Kingdom. And what's interesting in terms of draft Treaty A, in terms of later history, and again, this is the 24th of October, 1921, very early on, is that there was no mention of an oath of allegiance in the draft Treaty A by the Dublin cabinet. And when Griffith wrote to de Valera on the 24th of October, advising that the British were essentially trying to pigeonhole them into an oath, de Valera wrote back in some strenuous terms stating that we can have no oath of allegiance and if we must face war, we will do so. This caused uproar in the Irish delegation. They wrote a letter in which they all signed off a day later, rebuking de Valera's intrusion in their powers as plenipotentiaries and asking him if he wished to negotiate to come over now to negotiate in London rather than dictating terms from Dublin. This is very interesting because the suspicion is that, you know, on one, on the one hand, you would have Republicans saying that the delegation is already starting to go go native, as it were. Um, uh, the delegation, I suppose, themselves would say that they are more au fait with the realities of the situation. But is there already drift taking place between Dublin and London? You know, Irish Dublin and Irish London, if you like. You put it perfectly. London, Ireland and Dublin, Ireland are two very different dynamics right now in this last week of October. Um, Collins and Griffith, and we'll talk about this in future weeks, are already seeing that there is a clear differential between the kind of politics at home. And again, there's no pressure in Dublin in the sense of they're not meeting in these gruelling negotiations. They're almost dictating in terms of high politics, the idealism of the Republic. Collins and Griffith uh, primarily are negotiating in the hard politics of you know, what does empire mean? What does our sovereignty mean? And trying to convey this idea of external association, which they may not believe in themselves, but they're still trying to communicate this. And their best player, the, the football analogy is often used by De Valera, held in reserve as a substitute, is dictating these, you know, symbolic terms from a distance. Whereas they're hard pressed in close negotiations with Lloyd George, Churchill and Birkenhead. So London, Ireland and Dublin, Ireland are now growing apart. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but to what extent does draft treaty A become de Valera's document number two, which he uh, produces during the, the treaty debates? Constitutionally, they are very similar. Again, the premise is external association. And if you look at the treaty debates, and again, we are jumping forward a little bit in um, early 1922, when de Valera tries to press this alternative to the treaty, it's met with just derision on the part of even hardline Republicans who see it as no essential difference. So there is a clear line between the hardline Republicans led by Cahill Brewer, Austin Stack in, in the doll, and De Valera, who he even says in August of 1921, he's not a doctrinaire Republican. And there is an element of De Valera playing both sides of the field here, going back to that sporting analogy. So the uh, negotiations are off to a rocky start in October of 1921. And the 24th of October, this moment when external association is submitted, is the final day in which all of the Irish plenipotentiaries meet in a plenary session with the British team. Henceforth, they will meet in subcommittees. And from now on, it's the Collins and Griffith show. Dara Gannon, thank you very much indeed once again for joining us for another edition of your Downing Street Diaries and we'll catch up with you. We'll catch up with the negotiations again in another few weeks. After the break, for King and Country, Dr Heather Jones will join me to talk about her new book on the British monarchy and the First World War. Stay with us. 
Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. For king and country, during the First World War, that was a phrase that featured on countless postcards and posters, a phrase used to motivate people to join the war effort. And indeed, after the war, those same words adorned war memorials all over Britain. We're going to focus tonight, though, on the king part of that well-known phrase. I'm joined by Heather Jones, author of the new book For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War. Heather, welcome back to The History Show. Thank you very much, Mark. That was It was a ubiquitous phrase, for king and country. And I suppose it tells us a lot about the role of the crown during wartime and in general terms in, in British society. Were people more likely to fight in 1914 for a king than a country? Well, it's actually two things going together that mobilised people in 1914, 1915. What's very interesting is in the first part of the war, there isn't conscription in the United Kingdom. So they need to find languages that will encourage men to volunteer to fight. And so this idea of doing your duty to your monarch is a very potent one that they use on posters, in propaganda, at recruitment rallies. And it's kind of embedded in the idea of being a man and being British in this period. Um, So there's a real romanticisation of monarchy at the outbreak of the war. And monarchy and country are seen as very much inseparable, the same thing. And that, you know, that's that's what got me interested in in this topic, this question, what is actually the role of the king part of this dynamic um, that gets, you know, men to volunteer? Um, And why is this phrase everywhere in the first in the first phases of the war? Let me rephrase the question then. Would you be more likely to fight for a king than for Herbert Asquith or Lloyd George? You would indeed be more likely to fight for the monarch than for Asquith or Lloyd George. Um, And in some cases, actually, in some periods of the war, the prime minister became quite unpopular, whereas the monarch was always popular throughout the war and is very much seen as sort of kind of an embodiment of Britishness, uh, a very symbolic, a very symbolic individual and someone who's viewed in this period with a lot of awe and reverence. But in relation to the status of monarchy in general, I mean, in Britain, for example, there must have been a jaundiced attitude towards monarchy in general, given that the uh, the British were fighting against an emperor and not only an emperor, but an emperor who was related to their own king. Yes. Now, this is very interesting. So what starts to happen during the war is this language of a kind of British monarchical exceptionism, a kind of a special case argument for the British royal family starts to appear, that somehow British monarchy has these ancient traditions going back to the Magna Carta and it's somehow different to those tyrannical continental monarchies that that now in the war appear unacceptable and increasingly there's anti-monarchism spreading on the continent in the last two years of the war. So you get this really strong language that somehow Britain's different to the rest of Europe and its monarchy is somehow different. Um, And the language appears in 1917-1918 right through to, to 1919 that the British monarchy is monarchy by consent which is very much a narrative the palace like to put out as well, that somehow monarchy in Britain is democratic. And that's a very much a kind of a wartime endeavour to make them look different to the continental monarchies, which are increasingly unpopular in Britain. Obviously, the the German monarchy is hugely unpopular from the outbreak of the war, but also the Russian monarchy becomes very unpopular um, during the war and the Greek monarchy. And they're all related to the British king and queen. Um, So this narrative of British exceptionalism becomes really important. And the the Belgian monarchy, I would have thought, because uh, obviously King Leopold had been shopped by Roger Casement not that long before the outbreak of the war. Yet here are the British going to the aid of the the country of which Leopold is a monarch. No, he's not the monarch at this point. So uh, what's interesting is it's it's King Albert. Yeah, yeah. 
what's interesting in World War One is the, the Belgian and the Italian monarchies remain quite popular in Britain. And those are the monarchies that are also seen as really giving up luxury for the war, really you know, suffering with their people is the kind of narrative that appears in the press about those two monarchies. Uh, the Belgian king, he takes a commander in chief role. He actually kind of directs his armies directly in the battlefield. His son is sent to the front as a young teenager. And it's quite, you know, to us, it seems quite, quite shocking that such a young boy is sent to experience trench life. And so the Belgian monarchy who spend the war in the one tiny part of the coast that is not occupied by the Germans, they're seen as quite courageous and brave in Britain during the war. And they, have, they end up having quite a close friendship, actually, with King George V and Queen Mary, who invite them to their silver wedding anniversary during the war. And the Belgian monarchy becomes, it becomes quite heroised in, in the British press. And if it, the Italian monarchy as well is seen as, as kind of quite, quite a popular monarchy in Britain. But they're the exceptions. And really, the British monarchy is given a whole completely different level of attention in the British press. It is portrayed as a kind of innately British, innately democratic uh, monarchy. And obviously, this is a complete myth. I mean, this is, this is a dynasty that, is, that has its origins very recently in Germany. Uh, Queen Mary is, is Mary of Tech. Uh, her parents were German. You know, so, so this, is all, this is all created as part of the kind of the language of romanticising the British monarchy at the outbreak of war, where there really is a kind of rush to the colours. There is a sense that this is a war Britain must fight, a difficult war, a dangerous war, a war that is, the, a war that is righteous is the type of language that's used. And the monarchy is, is, is kind of used as an emblem of the British values that Britain is fighting for. Now, obviously, central to the book is King George V and and Queen Mary as well, because George V reigned from 1910 to 1936. How did the outbreak of the war affect him, given all of these relationships that he would have had with other European monarchies in particular? But just in general terms, how does the outbreak of a war of any kind affect the sitting monarch? George V at the outbreak of the war is in a very difficult position. There's a British convention that constitutionally he can't go and direct his armies, but he is still commander in chief. Technically, he delegates those powers then to the commander in chief in the field. So for most of the war, he wears the uniform. He tries to kind of keep the same status, obviously, of, of the military. He doesn't want to be overshadowed by figures like Haig. Um, he wants to kind of have that status of being being visible to the troops. So he goes to visit France. He and Queen Mary spend a lot of time visiting hospitals, a lot of time talking to the wounded. They see people dying. They, he, he attends operations. Um, you know, he's in casualty clearing stations at one point during, during the spring offensive of March 1918, where he rushes to the front and, uh, you know, witnesses really appalling things, all in an effort to, to continue to be the key symbol, the key leader above all the other leaders in the British war effort. Um, so he's, he's very personally affected by this. And, and I think slightly insecure as well at the position that he faces, which is to try and continue you know, to keep the monarchy's status intact in the face of a total war situation where, you know, Lloyd George becomes very popular. He's a dangerous potential rival to the monarchy in their eyes. You know, Haig as well. So even though Haig is very subservient to the king, so the king really has to kind of maintain his status. The other reason the war is difficult obviously is, he, he, you know, he has to cut contact with a lot of his relatives. Um, when war breaks out, he's extremely angry with the Kaiser. Um, he blames the Kaiser for the war. He views the Kaiser as, in many ways, in religious terms, George V is a very religious man. He views the Kaiser as kind of doing the devil's work, creating this terrible war, which is destroying Europe. 
you know, so, so that, that whole side of, of contact um, with kind of the, the Hohenzollern side completely disappears. Um, in contrast, the women of the royal family continue to, to write to some of their German relatives during the war, not to the Kaiser, but Queen Mary writes to an elderly aunt um, who, who's uh, a member of a German dynasty throughout the war. They use intermediaries. Queen Alexandra also continues to write letters. Um, so there's, there's an interesting tension there that the British royals face. What do you do with, with some of your relatives being on the other side? So how did George V feel about thousands of men dying in his name, if not necessarily on his behalf? Or did he, did he personalise it to that extent? He did personalise it to that extent. And I think George V really did believe, and Queen Mary as well, that these men had laid down their lives for king and country. And therefore the monarchy had a duty to then serve the people to make good on that sacrifice. And that was an immense emotional burden that they then carried for the rest of their lives. Um, and I think if you look at the abdication crisis, for example, Queen Mary is very angry at her eldest son when he becomes king, that when other men had given up their lives for, for their country, he couldn't give up a woman. Um, and she makes that exact comparison and, and kind of argues the people won't understand, you know, that they've had to make these immense sacrifices in the war and you can't make a lesser sacrifice. And I think they, you know, they exaggerated the extent to which soldiers were fighting for the king by the end of the war. I mean, by the end of the war, um, there's conscription. Many men don't have a choice about being sent to the front. Some when they see the king coming on his visits to the front, they're just a bit bewildered as to what he's doing there. In some cases, we have examples where the men mutter under their breath and mutter rude words. We have an oral history interview with someone who was, who was present during uh, one of the visits and they were lined up on the road for the king's car to go past and the men are muttering under their breath. Um, they're exhausted. They've just come out of the line from fighting and, and you know, there's resentment there. So it's, by the end of the war, I think the monarchy themselves are slightly ex- exaggerating to themselves the extent to which men are still fighting for king and country. The slogan is still there, but this is not the same as 1914 and 1915 anymore. Now, 1418 was not a good period for monarchs. And at the end of the war, he's almost the last man standing in terms of the major monarchies. You know, the Hohenzollerns are gone, the Habsburgs are gone, the Romanovs are gone. Is there then much anti-monarchical sentiment in the UK which causes George V to worry about his future and the future of the monarchy in Britain? So it's very interesting when you start looking to see how far does this, does the 1917-1918 war weariness translate into anti-monarchism in Britain on the home front. And when you start to go looking for that, you don't actually find large scale manifestations of anti-monarchism. So you don't find large amounts of graffiti. You don't find people pulling down royal symbols. You don't find mass demonstrations. And in fact, there's a royal wedding just after the war and it's hugely well attended. Um, so, you know, this kinds of, the kind of anti-monarchism that, you, that one would look for as a historian trials, sedition trials, for example, or people interrupting the national anthem, none of those things are there. So what seems to have happened is that while a certain degree of of potential anti-monarchism or war weariness is developing on the Western Front and in some radical left-wing labour circles in Britain, that doesn't translate into a mass movement of any kind. And that is different to what we see, in, say, in Germany, where anti-monarchism is a big part of the end of the war and the revolution, or in, in, in Austria-Hungary, where, again, anti-monarchism is a big factor in, in the kind of push for nation-states that comes, comes out there. Um, so there's something going on in Britain 
And I think the fact the monarchy has created this wartime image of hard work, of, you know, giving up alcohol, giving up theatre, giving up, you know, all kinds of entertainment, horse racing. They do none of this during the war. They they spend a lot of the war eating quite a meagre diet, actually, trying very hard to kind of display their their common suffering and, and kind of sharing in the people's in the people's war effort. And some of that, I think, percolates through. And there is a sense that, that the monarchy remains quite stable. Um, and the, some of the existing historiography or historians' work on this has slightly exaggerated the rise of republicanism in Britain in 1917 and 1918. Because when you go looking for it, they're just amongst ordinary ordinary munitions workers. It just isn't there. They flock to see royal visits. They come out and they clap, they applaud. In 1917, there is a strike wave in Glasgow and the north of England, a very serious strike wave against the Lloyd George government. And Lloyd George is unable to go there. He is he's very much persona non grata. But he and the cabinet send the royal couple, they send the king and queen there because they know that the strikers will talk to them. And the king meets with the militant labour leaders and he meets with the trade union leaders in those areas. And the visit goes very, very well. And in fact, it's a factor in kind of calming the situation. Now, you wouldn't see that in Germany or in Russia, you know, at that point in the war. The anti-monarchism is far, far stronger, far more of a popular movement. The German court is still serving caviar and building a, a ridiculously luxurious palace on the outskirts of Berlin while the people are starving from the blockade. This is a big contrast to what's going on in terms of the ways that the King George V and Queen Mary are going out and visiting all of these munitions factories day in, day out, and the hospitals as well. And I think that does make a difference. Let's finish by talking a little bit about Ireland because there's a train of thought which sees the post-war nationalist conflicts across Europe as a continuation of World War I by other means and that includes the Anglo-Irish War. So go back to 1914 and, the, and uh, just before the beginnings of the war when perhaps the British cabinet's attention should have been focused on what's going on in Europe. Instead, it's focused on what's going on in Ireland and George V calls the Buckingham Palace conference between unionist and nationalist leaders. Was that his own personal initiative or was he nudged by the government to call that conference? It's very interesting, uh, George V's relationship with Ireland, because on a number of occasions during during the war years and just before, he does take personal initiatives. And um, the Buckingham Palace Conference was an initiative developed by palace advisors, the king and the government together. Asquith was also in favour of it. But the soundings came initially from one of the king's advisors. Um, so that, you know, it, it's quite, it was Fritz Ponsonby, the keeper of the Privy Purse, who was one of the people who came up with this idea. And the idea was that if the king hosted this event, none of the parties in Ireland could say no. Uh, because he was seen as being above politics and because at that point the Irish nationalist movement was a home rule movement. Um, so it was looking for devolution within the United Kingdom. Now, by the end of the war, we see other personal, personal initiatives as well from, from the king. But at this point, the situation has radically changed in Ireland and the British monarchy haven't grasped that. So you find statements from some of the king's advisers and some of the prime minister's advisers claiming that Ireland is actually very sentimental about the monarchy and still monarchist. And if the king intervenes, that this will somehow, you know, this will go down very, very well. They've completely missed the, the, the huge turn to republicanism in, in the general election of December 1918. They've really not picked up on the, the sea change that has taken place in Irish nationalism. Nevertheless, when one looks at, 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 at things like the king's opening of the Northern Irish Parliament, that does go, still go down quite well with certain circles of moderate, moderate Irish nationalists who still see George V as the reforming king, uh, the king who had reached out to Catholicism, who'd removed the anti-Catholic clauses from the coronation oath, who'd visited Maynooth and visited um, Catholic locations in, in Ireland during its 1911 visit. And his speech itself in Belfast is very much a personal initiative. 
it's really interesting, actually, how much he drafted of that speech and how he actually rejects a series of drafts that are put to him that are much more unionist. Um, and he keeps sending them back to cabinet, refusing to give the speech. It's, it's very, it's skating very close to the constitutional line, what he does there, in initially turning down some of the words that Lloyd George initially wanted to put in his mouth. Let's talk also about the treaty negotiations and specifically about the oath of allegiance, because that was something that divided the parties right up until the end. And there are various attempts at forms of words and so on and and, and so forth. I mean, to what extent did, did King George play any part in that? Because essentially what we're talking here about here is an oath of allegiance to him and his continuance as head of state in Ireland. Yes, for for George V, what was important in the treaty was this idea that the free state would still be part of the wider British empire. Um, So the monarchy at this point is looking to kind of reform the empire and can see the tensions that are developing with control from Westminster and Whitehall and the fact that many of these components of the empire want to cut with with political control from London. And they see it, they want to sustain their own position as as, still as as kind of in monarchical symbolic terms. So what they want is to, to try and retain the symbolic monarchy while the political links with London fall away. And so the treaty is a classic example of that. And um, the idea being that if, if George V is still the head of state, it doesn't really matter if Ireland is, is an independent dominion or whether it gets home rule to the monarchy. It's the monarchy is still is still present. The people of the of the country would still be British subjects in international law. Every person in the empire at this point um, is effectively all the populations of the same legal status, the same nationality status as a British subject. Now, we know the empire is riven with racist discrimination at local level and at at the level of individual governments. But the international legal status of people when they travelled was British subject. And so Irish people following the treaty would legally still be British subjects when the king remained head of state. And that's one of the reasons why the Oath of Allegiance is so problematic for Irish Republicans. Not only have Republican TDs already taken an Oath of Allegiance to the Republic, which this oath in in the door coming in uh, to, to, to King George V would contradict, but also they want Ireland to have its own independent national citizenship. They want Irish passports. Across the empire, there, 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 is no, there are no individual national passports at this point. So, so the Oath of Allegiance is, is much more than a symbolic oath by parliamentarians. It actually cuts right to the chase of what all this is actually about, what kind of future state the Irish independent Ireland will be. Now, from the British point of view, one of the things they're also hoping for is that ultimately Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland will reunite as one large dominion still within the monarchical British Empire system. And so so one of the reasons, again, they're quite keen on this oath of allegiance is that that will facilitate that larger dominion forming later on, they hope, in the interwar period when, when things have calmed down. And um, It's a real misjudgment of the Irish mood. It's a real misunderstanding of the sea change to republicanism that's taken place. And I think it's, you know, it's really, it shows the kind of monarchical belief systems of the British delegation who are negotiating the treaty. The words they use around the Oath of Allegiance, I mean, it's almost like mystical. This idea of Britishness as allegiance to a monarch is really uh, embedded in their thinking. It's, it's a kind of almost religious belief system in, in the way they think. They cannot imagine a republic within the empire. And Griffiths actually argue, Arthur Griffith argues for that and says, you know, would that not be possible? And, and the British delegation simply cannot, they cannot even imagine it. It's beyond their ability to imagine. Now, obviously, after World War II, we know that does happen. But at this point, just after World War I, they cannot conceive of any kind of compromise around the idea of, the, of, of allegiance to the king and being, people being British subjects. 
Well, the book is called For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War. It's published by Cambridge University Press. The author is Dr. Heather Jones. Heather, many thanks indeed for joining us. Thank you very much, Matt. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.